As I thought about this topic and I thought about how Dr. Lutzer shared this morning from the Word of God and how he shared from his book, really, Seven Reasons Why You Can Believe the Bible, I had already talked to him about that and I said, well, how do you top that? <laughs> well, one of the ways to, to talk about that is what we're going to talk about today. And that has to do with the Bible, among other claimants to sacred authority. You heard in the video up there, there are some people that think the Bible is full of errors, full of mistakes, and other people who think that uh, the Bible is from God, it's sourced in God. Why do Christians consider that the Bible alone is God's word and not some other sacred text? Uh, why the Bible? Why not the Bhagavad Gita? Why not one of the Vedas? Uh, why not some other sacred text? Well, I believe there's reasons to say that he is there, God is, and he has spoken. So let's take a look at this question and try and address it, but consider, first of all, the true breadth of this topic. Uh, one need not lead a sheltered life to know that much can be covered under this heading, and I might look at any one of hundreds of texts. More than that, let's look first at what may move us to believe that the Bible is from God. And I've highlighted this, the text in here that on the screen that I want to turn to. But if you want to turn to 1 John 2, verse 18, you'll get a little bit of the context for what I'm about to say. John has testified that he wrote this book that he, his joy might be made complete if we would have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, as He and the apostles had. But notice the warning that comes to us in chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise He made to us, eternal life. Where do you find that promise? In God's Word. I keep reading. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. I find it very interesting that John says you have no need for anyone to teach you, and then he teaches them. Because part of the ministry of the Spirit in teaching through the Word is through teachers. But what is John saying? He is saying, out there in the world, you will have many people who claim to be able to point you the way to God. And every one of these sacred texts purports to give you 
a way to higher happiness, to defeat evil. And the texts we will look at argue in this way. So amongst all these texts, why the Bible? Why do we believe in the Bible? Well, first of all, we saw in this passage, we have the inner the work of the Holy Spirit in convincing us about the nature of God's Word, the truthfulness, the verity of it. This inner witness of the Spirit is also referred to in Romans 8.16. It's an important factor in both conviction and in perception of the central truths of God's Word, including the fact that it comes from God, that He is there, that He is not silent. The Spirit's inner witness is a direct, orderly, supra-rational testimony. By that I mean, when I pick up this Word, it resonates in my soul as the Word of God. And you say, well, that's a strange argument, but it's true because I have the anointing, the inner witness of the Spirit in my being. It tells me that this word is true and superior to those other words. Now, that's a testimony amongst believers. Because if I'm speaking to someone who does not have the inner testimony of the Spirit, I'm not going to convince them with that argument. But if you believe the Bible is the Word of God, one of the reasons you do so is because of the inner testimony of the Spirit of God working within you. He convinces us of truths in a way beyond the reading and interpreting of Scripture. There are many matters in Scripture that are left for us to examine using our rational, our empirical senses. And we can come to some fairly firm conclusions about them. There are issues that are more peripheral than others, such as those regarding the future. These negotiables are important areas of investigation. Beyond that, the Spirit convicts. Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and, as John said, judgment. So that's part of the work of the Spirit in the world. He'll convince them of these things. But convictions, the Spirit's work is primarily in the area of conviction rather than cognition, rather than helping us what we know what we know. Let me just reduce this to its simplest terms. If I have two believers sitting down together who are both indwelled by the Spirit of God, interpreting a passage, they will always come to the same conclusions. That's why there's no denominations. That's why there's no differences of opinion between any. We all just agree, right? No, so clearly the ministry of the Spirit is not to get us all to agree on the meaning of the Word of God. So what is the ministry of the Spirit? The ministry of the Spirit is to move us, once we understand that word, to convict us of its truth, and being convicted of its truth, to put it into proper motion. So, sympathy to the biblical author opens up understanding. The most sympathetic exegete, the most sympathetic interpreter of God's word is the believer. Unsympathetic interpreters often misunderstand because of a lack of desire to understand. In fact, as Pastor Lutzer shared this morning, uh, many people are convicted by the authority of God's Word that would, my life, if this Word is true, must change. And so when I see something in God's Word that really bothers me about something that I'm doing, it's not my natural inclination to just jump off on that ramp and say, yeah, I want to do it. No, I like my sin. Um, why do believers sin? First of all, um, 
because they perceive some short-term benefit, right? We sin because of that. At any rate, what does the Bible, what does the Spirit convince us of? Well, we know that He convinces us of our filial relationship to God, that we are sons and daughters of the living God, teaches that in Romans. The Spirit also teaches us, He teaches us of the bodily resurrection of Christ, according to Romans 1.4, one of the cardinal truths of Christianity, that which Paul said in 1 Corinthians, if it's not true, we are of all men most to be pitied. The Spirit convinces us of that truth. It convinces, he convinces us also of humanity, the bodily return, and the deity of Jesus, and the nature of salvation as a free gift from God. If you stop and think about this as a believer, you understand that the reason that you are a believer is because the Spirit was at work in your life. And for the person who does not know Jesus, the Spirit cannot be at work in that way. Is the Spirit's testimony broader than this? Well, it's doubtful that the Spirit confirms the time it took for God to create the universe, or whether dispensationalism or covenant theology is a better theological system. I've got my opinions. Or whether or not inerrancy is true, and I have my opinions about that as well. But that's not the work of the Spirit in Scripture. So let's get back to our original question. Amongst all of these texts then, are there any good reasons besides this inner testimony of the Spirit that we believe the Bible is the Word of God and not the Bhagavad Gita or some other sacred book? The Christian Bible is a book rooted in actual historical events. And of course, many other history books exist and we don't believe in them. Yet from Confucius to Muhammad, Tony Robbins to L. Ron Hubbard, from the Watchtower translation of Jehovah's Witnesses to the Book of Mormon, myriads of books, some historical and some not, set forth claims to be authoritative. Tonight, we'll really only look at one source. Uh, in my morning community class, we looked at some sources in Buddhism. Um, what sets the Bible apart from this mountain of sacred literature? Can we be sure that this book is different than the rest? and worthy of our confidence? My answer to that is yes, but let's see why. Have you ever heard this? Every once in a while I'm talking with somebody and they'll say, you know, I studied all the scriptures in the world and I decided that blank was the true and genuine word from God. You ever hear that? I hear it a fair amount. First, let me say that true or genuine in these cases often meant it appealed to me more than the others. <laughs> or, and the judgment was not based in credible reasons. Second, as you yourself may conclude at the end of this presentation, since we're only looking at one set of sacred literature, it's really not possible to do this to the full extent in a single person's lifetime. There are just too many so-called sacred books. How did John begin? There are many antichrists in the world. <laughs> People who will lead you away from the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ. How do we test the truthfulness of a worldview as contained or advocated in a sacred writing? One way to test the validity of another book is what worldview does it create in the person who believes in it? How do they look at the world? 
By the way, any of you who want this PowerPoint presentation, it's not copyrighted. I'll email it to you, copyright out of it, okay? The test of reason. A sacred writing should pass muster with the law of non-contradiction. Say, well, what's that? Give me a second. A test of experience. A sacred writing should correspond to the truth of experience in reality. If it teaches that evil is an illusion, as I said earlier, push that person in front of a bus and watch how quickly they get out of the way of that illusion. <laughs> right? The test of universality. It must be universally true, not just applicable to a particular culture or ethnicity. That's very Western of me, but let's go on. Truth is not perspectival. There is a problem with people saying truth is relative. No one can know the truth. The law of non-contradiction, however, is based in three coordinating premises that are very hard to overturn. First is the law of identity. A equals A. Each thing is identical with itself. An apple is an apple. It's identical with itself. Secondly, the law of the excluded middle. A or B. For any proposition, either that proposition is true or its negation is true. Things are true or they are not. Does that make sense? Very simple. Thirdly, A cannot be non-A at the same time and in the same sense. Now, if you feel like you're in seminary, that's good. Let me put it down to where it's very basically understood. Two opposite things cannot be true at the same time and in the same sense. Christ's physical death on the cross, as taught in Scripture, as well as the fact that he actually died and he rose, and the Quran's teaching that Judas died on the cross and not Jesus, cannot both be true. You see how I'm applying the laws of logic to the Quran. It argues that Jesus made it look like he died on the cross, but Judas died in his place. Interesting. Which one is true? Either the scriptures are true or the Quran is true, right? Or maybe they're both wrong, right? Maybe this is a fallacy of the excluded middle. Sacred texts should not only square with logic, they should also agree with themselves. In other words, a text that is out of harmony with what it affirms, what it claims to be truth, has a problem. For example, the Islamic doctrine of textual abrogation. You don't need to understand that word. It's a, the idea that a later revelation uh, supplants an earlier revelation. In other words, it overturns that truth. That may have been true then. This is true now. Hmm. Is truth subject to change? We might ask that question. Muslims aver that God can make statements of temporary application to his people in a given setting, and when the circumstance changed, a new revelation, even a contradicting revelation, could be given. But because both commands were the word from God, they are part of the recitations of the Quran through some earlier laws, though some earlier laws and judgments are nullified and superseded. In the Quranic doctrine of the text replacing itself, Later revelations can annul earlier revelations. For example, 
Some of the earlier or Meccan surahs, uh, by the way, if you're looking at a Quran, if you're looking at a chapter, it's called a surah. And if you're looking at a verse, it's called an ayah. Okay? So some of the early surahs contain a more moderate tone of peace and tolerance toward other religions. For example, surah 29, ayah 46 is very peaceful sounding. This is why when you dialogue with your Muslim friend, when you talk to Muslims in general, they call Islam a religion of peace, and it is if you submit to Allah. Many Muslims believe these verses were superseded by subsequent revelations in later surahs that seem to promote a more hostile attitude toward others. For example, in Surah 2, Ayah 106, Allah declares that whatever communications we abrogate or cause to be forgotten, we bring one better than it or like it. Do you not know that Allah has power over all things? That's a very different worldview. Whereas the Bible is a consistent, contextualized, and unified account with harmonized themes. Pastor Lutzer spoke of that this morning. The incredible unity of theme and purpose over 1,500 years, 40 different authors, 66 different books. It may seem too simplistic when I say it, but the experience of reading the Bible as opposed to, say, reading the Bhagavad Gita is that when properly read and interpreted, the portrait both of reality and of God's and authority is the same throughout. This is not true with other sacred texts, and especially the fragmentary and often bereft of context Quran. Uh, you will read entire books in the Quran, and I encourage you to do it, and you will find very little context, except in certain sections. All of this relates to the nature of truth and the law of non-contradiction. Some sacred texts portray truth as relative or per perspectival. I ever heard the story of the four blind men and the elephant? You probably were taught it at some point or another. The four blind men enter the room, and one man grabs hold of his legs and says, it's a tree. Another one grabs a hold of the side of the elephant and says, no, it's a large wall. Another man grabs the tail and says, no, it's a snake. And the other one grabs the trunk and identifies it as something else. I can't remember what he identifies it with. That's perspectival truth. Which, one of the, which of them is right? Well, what's the real answer? None of them. It's an elephant, right? But some people think that's the way truth is, that truth is perspectival. It all depends on how you look at it, right? But the Bible is not that way. How we know what we know is relativism possible with respect to truth. Is all truth relative? Nobody can know the truth is not a viable position. The law of non-contradiction forces one off the bubble. How? Sooner or later, in order to defend, one must affirm certain statements as true and others as false. If someone, for example, claims that the law of non-contradiction is false, he or she are asserting that it is true that the law is false or that it is false, that it is not false. In other words, in order to deny the law, one must apply it and use it as though it were true. <laughs> you see the problem? One might subject sacred text to scrutiny based on the worldview each one teaches. This is how Ronald Nash argues in his book. Subject the resultant character of the worldview to four worldview tests, the test of reason, 
the test of outer experience, of inner experience, and practice. What does it produce practically in society? Um, certain forms of religions, uh, like Hinduism, that we'll look at, produce a caste system where people are at various levels of their experience of karma in the world. Does it produce a productive society? While they have power to prove a worldview wrong, these tests cannot prove it right. For example, something may be logically coherent and yet wrong. Deism, as a system, says that God wound up the world, put it on a shelf, and walked away. He's not involved in it now. Well, it's a logically coherent system, but it's, not, but it's wrong. God is active in his world. Henotheism is the idea that I believe in one God, but there may be others. <laughs> right? I believe there's only one God, but there may be others. That's not logical or consistent. So few people act or live as though the law of non-contradiction were not true, was not the case in reality. Not everyone, truth corresponds to what is. Not everyone will agree with this perspective, but few live out their lives as though truth did not correspond to what is. And this is what John said in 1 John 2.21. I, I, I have not written to you that you do not know the truth, but that you do know it, and that no lie is of the truth. John's pretty black and white there. There is truth, there is non-truth. So, we're going to try and limit our uh, discussion to a manageable time frame here, so I'm going to skip these slides and get right to the heart of the matter. Some of the other claimants here. This talks about how texts function in other religion. Um, some general applications of reason to various texts. Let's just skip to this. Some claimants to authority among religious writings contain contradictions within themselves. For example, in the Quran, one passage says, Jesus will be with God in paradise as a great prophet. And another says that he will be in hell for being worshipped by Christians. Which, which is true. According to the Quran, both are true. The Book of Mormon, prior to the 1981 change, said that American Indians will turn white when they convert to Mormonism. There's many weird things I could tell you about Mormonism. Sorry. Depending on how one defines God, if such writings were truly from God, such discrepancies wouldn't exist. Right? If it's from God, why does it have error in it? Why would it make such ridiculous assertions? And in fact, these assertions are inconsistent with their own portraits of God within their own systems. Some more critique, just a couple things. Uh, we'll, we'll skip that one. Some specific religious texts. So let's examine together one tradition. That's all we have time for. I told you there's hundreds of these texts. I, you feel like you're in a comparative religion class? Yeah. That's kind of how you're meant to feel. But I want you to understand there is good reason to believe the Bible and not these other texts are sacred. And, and there are a lot of ways we could go at this, but I've chosen this one. So, Hinduism. First of all, we'll look very quickly at the three modes of Hinduism and their texts. I'm not going to go through all of the detail on these slides, but I'm going to point out this. Why Hinduism? 
Well, it permeates American culture in ways you might not realize. Less than a mile from my house is a Hindu temple in Willow Springs. There are Hindus all around the city, and many people have no idea what they believe or what they base authority on. What are their sacred texts? George Harrison's 1970 hit song, My Sweet Lord, anybody remember that one? Was written in praise of the Hindu god Krishna. Harrison intended the lyrics to that song as a call to abandon religious sectarianism. He blended the Hebrew word hallelujah, which you can recognize in the song, acceptable to both Jewish and Christian faiths, with chants of Hare Krishna and Vedic prayer. After, later in the song, after an instrumental break, voices return chanting the first 12 words of the Hare Krishna mantra, known in Hinduism as the Maha Mantra. And so everybody knows, loves how the Beatles brought Hinduism into popularity in the West. Well, understanding the sacred texts of Hinduism and their relation to Hindu practice. This might take, a, I'll try and go through this quickly, but all three of these modes are active in contemporary Hindu practice. Priests and the people who seek them out for sacrificial rituals, ascetic renouncers who live at the margins of society, who exhibit extraordinary inner spiritual power, and regular people who live lives, pious lives of prayer and devotion to the gods and service to the community. All three of these modes may be present in one household, even though they span hundreds of years. A family might go through their daily lives at school and work, performing basic rituals of devotion to a god, to a puja, but they might also practice yoga or meditation. And when a family member dies, they might go back and call the priest to conduct ancient Vedic funeral rituals in the home and at the cremation. So what I'm saying is, I'm going to show you three texts. All three texts are at work in the lives of modern Hindus. Hinduism, the Vedic stage, the earliest form of Hinduism, centered around four sacred texts called the Vedas. And you can see their characteristics there. They were polytheistic, many gods, materialistic, had a priestly caste, very ritual-oriented, and sacrificial. They focused on offerings made to the gods. Beyond that, the next stage was the Upanishadic stage. The Upanishads, uh, the word means secret word or secret text, are a commentary on the earlier Vedas. They too existed in oral form for centuries before being written down. The teachings differ from the Vedic stage as these texts developed in part as a reaction against the Vedic form of religion. So a whole form of religion, a whole way of life developed around the first text, and then there were texts that tried to reform and create other realities. The last one is the Gita stage, uh, the Gita phase or stage. And this is centered in the Bhagavad Gita, which means Song of God, or just it's also called just the Gita, depending on who is referring to it. It's an important sacred text that's part of a much larger epic work called uh, the Mahabharata. Uh, this is one of the longest epic poems in the world. Um, the Gita is a section of that larger poem that tells the story of Arjuna, a warrior, who is fighting in the civil war of the Bharta family. He must perform his caste duty as a warrior, but worries that he is bringing bad karma to himself by fighting against extended members of his own family. And in the text, 
His chariot driver turns out to be the Lord Krishna in disguise, who helps him wrestle philosophically with his dilemma. Wonderful text. Wonderful stories, right? I don't read Sanskrit, um, but they have been translated, and you can read them, access them very easily. Um, the Gita is part of a larger-than-life work that's larger than the Iliad and the Odyssey combined. In the 18 chapters of the Gita, the chariot-driving God in disguise instructs Arjuna that salvation is attainable by devoting oneself to Krishna, hence George Harrison's lyrics. Really want to know you, Lord, but it takes so long. Krishna, Krishna. Uh, devote yourself to Krishna and carry out the duties of one's caste in society. And he said, boy, I've had enough. I don't really need to have any more about Hindu religion to say that's not for me. However, that is the practice of many of your neighbors in the Chicagoland area. And if we're serious about reaching the world for Christ, we ought to have meaningful observations for our Hindu friends and neighbors. Questions that we would ask them. One of the main ones is what they believe about sin. However, uh, why you might, we might want to ask them, or ask them to consider the Bible. In contrast to sacred Hindu texts, the Bible registers a credible historical viability. Biblical faith has historically fixed characters and events, which are identifiable through forensic sciences like archaeology and textual criticism. Hinduism certainly has a history, but its theology, its mythology, and history are so often blurred together that it becomes difficult to identify where one stops and the other begins. Mythology is openly admitted within Hinduism, which possesses elaborate myths used to explain the personalities and natures of the gods. There is a need for a faith rooted in history. Hinduism certainly is flexible and adaptable because of its historical ambiguity. But where a religion is not historical, it is that much less testable. It may not be disproven at that point, but neither is it verifiable. It is the literal history of the Judeo-Christian scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament, that justifies the theology of Christianity. If Adam and Eve did not exist, if Israel did not have an exodus out of Egypt, if Jonah was just an allegory, or if Jesus did not walk on earth, then the Christian faith can potentially crumble at those points. For Christianity, a faulty history would lead to a porous theology. While both Christians and Hindus have important historical figures, only Jesus is shown to have risen bodily from the dead. More than that, and maybe we'll finish with this because we could keep going. <laughs> I want to contrast reincarnation with resurrection. And I want to show you why one is better than the other. First of all, many people in history have been wise teachers or have started religious movements. Hinduism has its share of wise teachers and earthly leaders. But Jesus stands apart from all of them. His teachings are established with a test that only divine power could pass. Death and bodily resurrection, which he foretold and then fulfilled in himself. How did somebody put it recently? The guy who is able <laughs> not only to predict his death, 
and resurrection, but then do it? I want to follow that guy. And so the biblical doctrine of resurrection contrasts strongly with the Hindu doctrine of reincarnation. What is the critique of the Bible on these scriptures? It's found in Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed unto men to die once, and then comes the judgment. Whereas in Hinduism, there is a continuing recycle of this. Well, that's enough for one night. That's a long lecture. There'll be a quiz right afterward. But I'm sticking around to answer your questions, and Kenny's going to come up and join me as well uh, to do that. Do we have a, a finishing prayer, or what am I doing? You come on up and do a song if you want. We, prayer, prayer would be good right now, though. Is that what you're saying, Tim? Okay. All right. Father, thank you that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, not only for his disciples, but for every human being upon the planet today. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you that we can have confidence in the Bible as the Word of God as we compare it with other scriptures of other faiths, of other ethnicities, of other backgrounds. We see the truth of God's Word, and we have the remarkable testimony of transformed lives coming about because of faith in Jesus Christ. Father, encourage your people that the word they have is reliable. Through the inner testimony of the Spirit, continually convince them of the truths of the word of God, that they might live holy lives acceptable to you, which is their reasonable spiritual service. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>